Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinos, and we are picking up this evening on page 305 with paragraph number three down towards the bottom of the page. And if you remember, we've been discussing for quite a while now uh, the practice of the ascetic life, uh, but in, in particular in connection with one's relationship with a spiritual elder and specifically living a life of obedience, of listening to the counsel of one who has kind of experiential knowledge of the spiritual battle and so can be a, a true guide. And uh, the authors now begin to get into those situations that I think are more challenging for us, in particular where uh, maybe the elders are somewhat negligent or the counsel uh, that is given isn't uh, on mark, and how is one to respond to this, especially when one has committed oneself to a life of obedience or living in a monastery? And is there a kind of value to holding on to that obedience? Are we to trust uh, in the providence of God, even in certain circumstances when what is asked of us is arduous or doesn't seem to make sense? from our point of view or from our uh, perception of things. And, uh, and so this is what we'll be looking at here uh, in, in the completion of this uh, hypothesis and in the next as well. So again, page 305, uh, number three. Concerning the same Avasiloan, they related that he was once walking around Skidus with the elders wishing to show the obedience of his disciple on account of which he loved him, he saw a small, small wild boar and said to the brother, my son, do you see that that small buffalo? I certainly do, elder, answered the disciple. Do you see how many inches long its horns are? The elder asked a second time. Yes, elder. The elders were amazed at the disciple's response and they were benefited by his obedience. This is one of those stories, certainly, that where I think uh, there's something within us that uh, rages against, against it. You know, what is the purpose of such a thing? Where uh, he's asked to, to uh, go against his own perception of the truth that, and here it's fairly innocent, of course, he's not being asked to do anything immoral, but what is pointed out to him is uh, uh, a small boar rather than a buffalo, and yet he uh, gives his assent to the judgment of his elder, and, uh, and in this, I think we're meant to see, again, the level of, of trust that exist, existed in these relationships, and the level of love that uh, despite having that obedience put to the test in regards to a most basic judgment, the disciple is willing to let go of that and not once but twice to set aside private judgment uh, in favor of the judgment of his elder. And uh, certainly we might think this is somewhat ridiculous, but when things become much more difficult and challenging in the spiritual life, and when we are undergoing affliction or where we are being tested uh, by spirits that are set upon our de demise, the, the depth of that relationship 
can mean everything. Uh, because oftentimes our judgment of things can be accurate from our perception, from our view of things. We can see the truth, but it, oftentimes it is only a partial truth. And we can feel so convicted about it that we would take a path that might lead to our own destruction. Uh, and so the capacity of a disciple to have this kind of relationship and to have this level of trust and to be obedient, even though his senses are telling him something different, uh, can be quite important as, as the spiritual life moves along and as he's being tested further. And, uh, you know, it's in these small things that I think we prepare ourselves for the greater challenges that are to come in the spiritual life. Uh, any comments about this? Because it is kind of foreign to uh, you know, our experience, certainly of spiritual counsel or spiritual direction, and certainly of obedience itself. Any thoughts? If not, we have similar stories to come across here. Yes, Deborah. It doesn't seem very loving to mm -hmm. allow the elder to be wrong. Mm -hmm. If it's a boar and he's calling it a bison, how is that loving? Well, again, I think the elder realizes that it's not a bison or a buffalo. I think what his attempt to do there is to show the level of obedience to the other elders who are watching, uh, but also to test in a small way the, the willingness of this disciple, again, to let go of private judgment. And I don't think this one really has to do with love so much as it is uh, a gentle test of that willingness. Uh, because as I mentioned, you know, there will be, there will come times in this disciple's life where that test of his judgment is going to be far greater where it's not going to be about a buffalo or a boar. It's going to be about taking one path or another and where the evil one is there offering counsel and one's own judgment is saying, yes, that's true. And where the elder might be saying, no, that this is uh, a test uh, and a temptation of a deep sort in order to draw you off of the path that you've committed yourself to. And so I think stories like this one are meant to, to point us to something far greater. Yes, the love and affection that exists there that allows this, but I think the kind of test that we undergo in the spiritual life, uh, not at the hand of our elder but often at the hands of our, our, ourselves, our own judgment and perception, our own wants and desires, but also the, the misleading temptation and the trickery of the evil one. Okay. That he can make, you know, this idea of the devil appearing as an angel of light. And so uh, what is put before us might seem indistinguishable from the truth as we know it. And it might take someone who has been tested in similar ways throughout the course of his life to be able to say, no, wait upon the Lord. Don't make 
a decision. Maybe it's something like this, uh, not making a decision ever in a time of desolation and to wait upon God uh, to give us light, but also to bring peace to the mind and the heart. And one of the best little bit, bits of counsels exact, uh, uh, that I ever received was exactly that uh, very early on. Never make a decision in times of desolation, that this is when you really have to put things to the test most of all and seek, seek greater counsel. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Number four. Concerning Abba Moses, or I'm sorry, Abba Muez, it is said that he had Abba Seas for a disciple. The elder told him in order to test him, go and steal. He went and stole from the brothers for the sake of obedience, giving thanks to the Lord at all times. The elder took the stolen goods and secretly returned them to the, brother, to the brethren of the skeet. So this is a hard, this is a little bit of a harder one because it does involve a kind of moral judgment here. And so what does one do in a similar circumstance where what is being asked of us goes against our own moral perception of certain things? And uh, certainly it isn't, wasn't the intent again of the elder uh, for this young monk to steal. But again, I think it was a, a test of that trust in the guidance and that judgment and to see how far and willing he was willing to, uh, he was able to go. And again, I think there's something from our perception of things and I don't want to dismiss it uh, in the sense of it being unimportant that whenever we are asked to do something immoral, of course, that you know our obedience is to the truth and to that which is right and good. Uh, but again, I think here in this set of circumstances, what is being asked of this disciple, again, is a testing of this obedience. And so often, I, I don't really think this happens within uh, formation very much these days. And I remember reading something about uh, Padre Pio speaking about how different the formation had become from when he was a novice in the Capuchins to what he was experiencing in the young men in his own time uh, who had joined the community. And uh, often there wasn't, uh, there wasn't this kind of testing on multiple levels. And I think what we have to keep before our minds, again, is the one who's the icon of obedience for us, and that is Christ. You know, this willingness to, um, to become sin, to allow himself to be weighted down, and to become a slave, a servant, even to the point of death. And one who is the disciple of such a master may be called to let go of everything and enter into a profound darkness where he is unable to perceive any light moving forward and even feels forsaken and has to be drawn along by kind of raw endurance. And sometimes the only thing that will keep a person moving forward 
again, is this relationship that exists with an elder, that when one has no desire whatsoever for the spiritual life, or even feels that one is losing uh, a kind of love or affection for God, or losing that faith, that it can be the more personal encounter with an elder who's experienced similar things and has had to pass through a, a similar kind of hell or hellish experience and come out on the other end only to come to see the greater truth about what was going on within his own mind and heart and what God was doing in, in the sense of shaping and deepening an individual's faith. And so I don't want us to get overly focused upon uh, the particulars of the story ra rather than what it is forming and training the disciple to be able to do. And if we remember the desert in particular was seen as a battleground and not just any battle battleground, but a place where one goes to battle with, with demons. And so having this level of trust has to be equal to that, as it were, or mimic that of Christ's trust in the Heavenly Father. But let us see how, how things develop here. Rachel writes, he wanted to see if his disciple was stupid. <laughs> Sorry, I should not joke. Uh, maybe so. Uh, but uh, I think the if the other one wasn't stupid uh, in the previous story, I, I doubt if this one was. But uh, yeah, it does, I think on the surface can seem a little silly to us from our perspective. And I think if we can just suspend judgment for a little bit here, we'll be guided through it. Eric. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do struggle with this particular um, passage, but it did occur to me that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac right. um, and um, stopped him at the last minute. So that's something to sort of keep in mind when it comes to uh, obedience and, and right. maybe that's relevant. I don't know. Right. And, you know, I think all of that points us to something greater that what God did not require of Abraham, he offers us himself in the gift of his only begotten son. And, uh, and we are, you know, this is the reality that we have been called to and the life that we've been uh, able to enter into by, by the grace of God, which is a participation in the, the life of the Holy Trinity. And so what does our love, what does our trust, what does our obedience look like in light of that reality? And I, I think the gospel and what we read in the fathers often will stretch our judgment to, to the breaking point. And when we read something like the, the Beatitudes and then what follows upon the Beatitudes uh, often sounds like absurdity. Uh, do not resist one who is evil. And I think when we hear things like that coming from the mouth of our Lord, uh, it can be something that, again, stretches our our uh, ability to offer our assent to a kind of breaking point. What is it that will allow us uh, 
in those moments uh, of darkness to, to make that ascent. To say yes, even though we are being, we have no experience of consolation. And uh, what just came to mind was the gospel that we read for yesterday's liturgy was about uh, the paralytic being dropped down through the roof uh, in order that he, he might be drawn close to the Lord and so healed. And uh, Christ enters into this discussion with the scribes. What is easier to say? Rise and walk or your sins are forgiven you. And there's part of us that uh, sort of marvels and longs for what we see in the gospel want to hear that we want to hear those words you're healed of your disease arise and walk or you're freed from this particular affliction and especially when we crave it for one that we love or hold dear uh, that we would want to see that kind of miracle performed and this desire at times blinds us uh, to that which is far more difficult and uh, far more beautiful in its love. Uh, and that is the, and, uh, the ability to say your sins are forgiven you. We often don't think about the fact that Christ tells so many that he heals in the gospels, your sins are forgiven. Uh, what happens to those sins at those point, at that point? Or is Christ already taking them upon himself and bearing them? And read one commentator saying it was as if Christ had to become uh, uh, sort of more uh, aware of the subtleties of sin on, on the way to Calvary as he took upon himself the burden of each of these individuals sins as as he healed them and forgave them and then on calvary the flood of sin is uh comes upon him almost like the the flood of noah in noah's time and so it the answer to that question is that it cost everything to say your sins are forgiven you and that this is what Christ has to give his assent to the Father, has to say yes to, even in the face of the fact that he's been being rejected, scorned, called a, a blasphemer, a heretic, is lashed, you know, and pinned to the cross, uh, mocked, that in all of this, he has to say yes to the Father's will. And I think as we read these things and we find our, our sensibilities being jarred, uh, it's not such a bad thing because I think it's meant to draw us back to the gospel and Calvary and to, to be able to ask those questions of ourselves: what, what costs more? You know, what, what requires something greater? That capacity to, to heal a person or to take their sins away from them and if Isaac the Syrian says you know the greater thing is to recognize our own sin 
than to be able to raise a person from the dead. So simply the ability to acknowledge our own sin and repent is a, a greater thing than this ability to miraculously raise a person from the dead than to offer the kind of obedience uh, that we see in Christ is, uh, is even far greater. But in any case, why don't we follow along a little bit more here? We have a lot of, lot of stories to reflect upon. The elder related the following. I once went to Abosizos, who lived in Klisma, in what is now the governorate of uh, Suez, north of the Suez Gulf in Egypt. And I asked him to tell me an instructive story. Forgive me, Abosizos replied to me. I am an illiterate and ignorant man. After that, I went to Abba Or and Abba Athre. Abba Or had been sick for 18 years. I made a prostration before them and asked them to tell me an instructive story. What can I tell you, Abba Or answered me. Go and do what you see fit. God is close to the man who compels himself to do all good deeds. Abba Or and Abba Athre did not come from the same region, and yet there was such great peace between them that their souls were free of their bodies. The obedience of Abba Athre was great, as was the humility of Abba Or. I stayed with them for a few days, carefully examining their way of life, and I saw their many admirable deeds, of which I shall recount only this one. One day somebody brought them a small fish, and Abba Athre wanted to cook it for the elder. He began to chop it up, but in the meantime, Abba Or called to him. He immediately put down the knife and did not chop, chop up the remainder. I marveled at the, his great obedience because he did not say, wait a minute until I've chopped up the fish. I then said to the Abba, Abba Athre, where did you find this obedience? It is not my own. It is the elders. If you want, come and see his obedience. So Abba Athre cooked the fish, deliberately spoiled it, and brought it to the elder. He ate it with, without saying anything. Abba Athre asked him, Elder, is the fish good? It is very good, replied Abba Or. Then he brought him another small fish, beautifully cooked. And when the elder had eaten it, he said to him, I spoiled it, elder. Yes, you did spoil it a little, Abba Or, responded Abba Or. After this, Abba Athre said to me, so do you now understand that the obedience is the elders? I departed having received benefit from these Abbas and did what I could to put into practice what I had seen. And so a couple interesting things here that the obedience that he sees in the one elder is attributed to the, the greater obedience uh, that this Abba had seen in his elder, that he is embracing what he witnessed with his own eyes and the guidance that his master had given him through example, that what was asked of him in obedience uh, was not greater than what the Abba himself was willing 
to give or had shown over the course of time, or even in this one example, that he was willing to let go again of this private judgment or self-will, even in this basic way about uh, whether or not the fish was spoiled or whether it was perfectly prepared. And again, I think this pushes us back to, to Christ that the obedience that is asked of us is not greater than the obedience that has been offered and shown to us on the cross. And so whatever is asked of us in this life, whatever cross it is that we are asked to take up, that the willingness that we show is to be similar to uh, what we see in these little stories, the stories are little, and they are nothing in comparison to the greater obedience that we see in Christ. And yet they are, as it were, meant to warm the, uh, the heart in devotion and piety in order that we might move in the direction of a willingness to offer ourselves to God as Christ offered himself to the Father. For there may come a time in, indeed in our life where we are asked to take up a cross that seems uh, impossible for us. And we'll have to offer the, the, the same kind of ascent uh, that we see in Christ, whose food was to do the will of the Father. And so where, where is that going to come from? And I think it's our movement away from ascesis, from the exercise of the faith, from the ascetical life that trains the mind and the heart to conform itself to Christ, to put on the mind of Christ, to imitate him, that makes it more difficult for us and challenging when a heavier cross is placed before us. And for this reason, we often shrink back away from it and say, no, we will not allow ourselves to be guided down that path or to our particular Calvary. And, uh, and so you know, what again is being revealed to us is something of what, what the asceticism of obedience look like. Because remember in the previous hypotheses, we've been looking at what, what taking up the ascetical life looks like, how one begins to practice the life of asceticism and, and the form and shape that that takes. And now we are moving into and have moved into obedience. What, how, how does one begin to train for that? How does one exercise this virtue in particular? And if these stories seem silly to us, there's probably not very many of us who would be able even to do these little things, to let go of our judgment about whether that was a, a boar or a buffalo, or to let go of what our taste buds were are telling us. That's foul or that's delicious. So a lot more to think about in that regard. Any comments? Okay. From St. Ephraim the Syrian. 
a monk asked an elder, my Abba ordered me to go to the bakery to make loaves for the brethren. But the workers being worldly people say inappropriate things among themselves, which I derive no benefit from hearing. What should I do? The elder replied, have you not seen many children learning their letters together? And yet each of them studies his lesson and not another's. So you should pay attention to yourself and the meditation of your heart. But if you are conquered by the passions, then you should confess to your elder and do what he tells you. For he knows better than you do what is in the interest of your soul, in the interest of your soul. So part of our obedience is learning to listen to God and what he is calling us to do and to keep our focus upon that, even if all those around us are being willful and doing what they want or doing what is inappropriate as this monk experienced. And so keep your focus on your own lesson and not be attentive to what's going on in another person's life or what they are asked to do and whether or not they are doing it. And if any confusion emerges, then to ask your elder about it in order that he might give you the counsel and direction that you might need. So even though you're surrounded by darkness or actions that seem uh, inappropriate, not again to move first to your own judgment of it, but again, to turn to one who is more experienced in how to respond to that or how to be, avoid being influenced by it in a negative way. Because I think our, if left to ourselves in the spiritual life, our, our response is often tied on an emotional level to what is abhorrent to us or what is difficult to us, or the first judgments of our, our reason. And sometimes these can be on, uh, but sometimes they can be off as well. And sometimes they can be very far off. And so this willingness to submit the judgment of all of those faculties to a spiritual elder is to help keep us from taking a path that we are easily misled to follow simply by stirring up a, a particular passion. And for example, if we are uh, driven by anger, somebody may do something around us while, while we are trying to be faithful to what is set before us, and we might feel anger rise within our hearts and our judgment might swing to what they are doing and it's, and, it, and its inappropriateness. But in shifting our judgment, we are taking our attention off of what God has set before us in that moment to do and to be faithful to. And so this is what Ephraim is saying here, that uh, if it's so powerful and so disruptive, then allow yourself to go to your elder to have him confirm uh, uh, your judgment or tell you what is the safest path to take. 
it doesn't take very much to move our attention off of God. We've already talked about this so many times in regards to simple thoughts and the thousands of thoughts that approach us throughout the course of the day. But if there are passions that have us in their grip or emotions that are stirred, we can Im immediately take our focus as, as easily and as quickly as a, a child at his studies lose focus and loses attention upon what he's doing and focus upon what the kid next to him is doing. Any comments on St. Ephraim's thoughts? So it's interesting that he puts it in these, and they all do, in this kind of simplistic way. Okay, we're going to do the ABCs now of the ascetic life. And this is what the ABCs of obedience look like. And in particular, you know, they're speaking to young monks in a monastery uh, under an elder. But, you know, what does this mean for us? And uh, I think uh, certainly within the confessional or spiritual direction to be able to acknowledge those ways that, you know, we're struggling by being driven by anger or driven by, you know, our bodily appetites or whatever it might be, or where there's, uh, you know, a, a temptation uh, not to really enter, say, we're in Atlanta, not to enter into the fast. Nobody around me is doing this. Nobody takes it seriously, you know, or, or to spend the time in prayer because my friend's you know, want to go do this or that, you know, it's often there are little pressures that pull us away from keeping our attention upon God and what he would have us be attentive to in the given moment. And remember again, obedience, ab adore, you know, to, to hear, to listen. From Abba Isaiah, if your elder sends you out, ask him, elder, where do you want me to go? What do you need? Do what he tells you. Do not add or subtract anything from his instructions. You should not even wish to do good to a pauper if you have not asked him beforehand. If you do something without his giving you permission, you will be sinning. Now, an that's an interesting thought. Because again, most of us would say, what the heck? You know, if I see a pauper on the street and I want to give him a few coins, an act of charity, uh, what kind of obedience is being asked for here? But, you know, again, it doesn't take much thought to step back from this to say, okay, I've received the blessing from my elder or instruction from my elder to fulfill a certain task. And the evil one is not only going to use things that are obviously sinful to lead us into uh, disobedience, but often use good things uh, and have us do them in a willful way so as to move away from obedience. And at first they might be subtle and small things where we are putting our will forward and doing things without the blessing of our, in this case, of our elder, but eventually it can 
get, get to the point where one becomes convinced in one's own mind that doing this or taking this particular path is so important or so valuable that I need to heed my own will or what I think to be true rather than the, the one that I've committed myself to in obedience. And again, the one who has uh, greater experience in these particular challenges. And uh, because, you know, we, we listened in a previous section about uh, an elder casting out a demon and how an individual, you know, and so the demon goes around asking, uh, you know, look, look at what Abba so-and-so did to me. I'm, I'm without a home. And the guy receives him into his home. And it turns out he receives a demon into his home and the demon destroys his family. And it all begins with this kind of undiscerning choice to embrace a particular path of receiving into one's home. And in our case, often into our hearts, that which is not from God, but from self-will, self-judgment, uh, our own wants and desires, rather than what would be in accord with God or what our spiritual elder has asked from us. Any thoughts about that one? Nobody's chomping at the bit here and say, come on. <laughs> okay, Anthony writes, this has got to be specific to novices. Saints Elizabeth of Hungary are praised for charity against the wishes of the head of a household. Uh, in certain cases, I think with saintly individuals, and we'll come across them uh, in stories uh, in the coming hypotheses, um, where we see uh, the actions of, of a novice being praised. And certainly uh, saints have been formed in such a way that they have a kind of purity of heart. And so they have this capacity for discernment. Uh, and Philip Neary, again, you know, one who I loved, had this ability to, to see, you know, those who were uh, truly seeking aid, spiritual counsel, or those who were seeking something uh, far different, or in some ways malicious, or something that was uh, directed by some great darkness. So uh, someone trying to either get you know, money out of him or uh, to make fun of him or someone seeking to lead him into sin to test his virtue. And you know, through years of the ascetic life and through years of fasting and prayer, all nights and all nights in prayer that, uh, and this you know, gift of the spirit that God had given him, he has this capacity for discernment. So yes, you know, I think novices in particular in the spiritual life uh, are in great need of it. But most of these guys would probably tell you that they're novices in the spiritual life and would need to submit their, their judgment to their, their elder. And, uh, you know, I think not one of us uh, I think is beyond falling into a kind of lack of discernment. 
And again, Philip Neri, you know, when seeing somebody fall into sin, saying, there but the grace of God go I, that if he doesn't go down that path, it's simply because the grace of God had preserved him, had given him the light not to, not because his holiness is rooted within himself. And so, you know, at this point, one is striving and has a deep desire akin to the desire of Christ to be obedient to God in every way and how would have a kind of horror or nausea at the thought of doing something that was contrary to the will of, of God. But if these people can't use discretion, they also can fall into legalism. Oops, I don't have permission. I can't act on my own. Yeah, you know, I think this is why uh, a kind of formation along the lines and with the depth I think that we've been reading about it in the Evergetinos and uh, Climacus and Cassian and all the others, that there can be a kind of obedience that one finds within religious communities that fosters maybe not just a kind of legalism, but infantilizes the, those who are subject to it. And so they never really mature spiritually uh and their obedience is is really uh a setting aside of responsibility of striving to allow their their minds and their hearts to be formed in accord with this spiritual tradition and by the grace of god they have no will whatsoever because they've been infantilized by a superior who's controlling and manipulating them emotionally and who likes to be in power. And so they talk like little girls or little boys, even when they're in their 40s and 50s. And it, you know, I think that can be romanticized and idealized, but often that childlikeness can be more of a reflection of a kind of infantile mindset that really has not been formed either. And so it slips into this, what you describe as a kind of legalism on the one hand, uh, a harshness, uh, but or this kind of complete lack of personality and will that uh, one has stepped out of life, but not in an ascetic way but more out of avoidance. You know, so obedience becomes a kind of defense mechanism for having to deal with reality, deal with the hard things of day-to-day -day life. So one uh, can repress one's anger so deeply and frustration in those situations that it's really not obedience any longer and it's there's no, nothing about love within it or it really forms the heart in a christ-like way you see understand what i'm saying there anthony you look a little puzzled the religious life then is horribly dangerous it can be i think you know when there is a disconnect uh from the spiritual tradition and where, you know, communities are sort of making it up as they go along. 
and not dealing with reality, the realities of life, of brokenness, of sinfulness within the common life, and, uh, and don't have the means to offer that formation to others. Because often a horrible formation can perpetuate itself generationally. And so you can find a communities that are very much like alcoholic families, where, you know, this kind of way of interacting with each other is perpetuated uh, from generation to generation, either in the concrete act of drinking or in the alcoholic personality that is often developed behind that that can be perpetuated as, else, uh, as well. So if you've been afflicted by an alcoholic parent, then your way of coping with the realities of life or treating others or engaging in relationships with others can have this, you know, alcohol, you know, uh, have this can be a reflection of an alcoholic personality. And so, uh, you know, we've talked often about, you know, religious individuals are not incapable of having delusions. In fact, they're capable of having the greatest of delusions, because they often will think, well, this is what God desires. This is what God wants. And so the person who's uh, the superior can think, well, okay, I'm going to crush their personality in order to teach them uh, obedience. And, you know, the person uh, in that community may embrace that because maybe they entered so young or maybe they experienced something similar in their own family life. And so they fall right, right into that pattern. But are, are their minds and their hearts being uh, filled with the love of Christ? Are, are they being healed? Are they being made free in and through the spirit of obedience free to love and give themselves in love or is it something that is uh sh shackling them in a far greater way uh who wrote this here i'm sorry i think it's anthony again this in that indicates then that people cannot abandon their discretion they have to withhold some obedience so they can judge the situation whether it's healthy or crazy or just not for them uh, yes, and, you know, even I think we go back further in saying that uh, looking at the earlier writings in the uh, Evergatino, so saying one does not do this easily, one does not do this indiscriminately in terms of entrusting one's life uh, to the guidance of an elder, that it, there is already a kind of discernment that, that is needed there and that should have already been developed in the course of one's spiritual direction and th through conf confession as one is discerning a vocation. And uh, this is why even, you know, some people, I think like, I think it was like Benedict Rochelle and some others and his, his work on spiritual, pas spiritual passages. Uh, he sort of approaches the spiritual life from a developmental psychological perspective. And he often talks about these kinds of things, that there were ages where individuals were encouraged to enter into the, the religious life at a very early age. But there can be a real danger in that, that 
They might lack the freedom emotionally and intellectually as well as spiritually to make that kind of decision and to understand what it is really to live that. And so they can become vulnerable to precisely the things that we've been talking about. And so, you know, this is why, you know, I've tried to reiterate that what is being put forward here is not a kind of slavishness, that the obedience that we are speaking of is, the again, the obedience of Christ that is guided and directed. Its origin is love, but the fruit of it is love and freedom as well. You know, this is what Christ's obedience brought us, is freedom and the fullness of love. And it is that reality that should shape and direct, you know, our embrace of the spirit of obedience in our own life. But it should also shape the uh, obedience of religious communities who are responsible for forming those who come to them. And, you know, this, we often hear that sometimes this enters into marriage where sometimes people take what St. Paul says in part and use it, you know, as a way of, you know, wives should submit to their husbands and will use it in this kind of way, a controlling and manipulative way. Because if you can gain emotional power a position of emotional power over another, that can be a seductive kind of thing. And if you can wrap it all up in religiosity, boy, that can really be something that's attractive because it gives you the power to manipulate and control circumstances as well as others. So yes, religion can be a very dangerous thing. And when people say that, they're not always wrong. Sometimes they're very right. And we prove them right more often than not, unfortunately. Yes, I've seen situations, Anthony writes, both of people in religious life and married life that were just psychologically off, right? And, you know, this is where I, I you know, I often mention Freud, you know, that we would say no to so much of what he might say about religion. But if we're honest, and if we're seeking the truth, there's a big part of us that has to say, yes, he was right on the mark. That sometimes religion and religiosity can be used uh, as a psychological construct that makes a person feel safe, or you know, they're seeking security in it, that it really has nothing to do about God. Now, it's not as though a person can't eventually be freed from that. And, you know, God has ways of working in people's life providentially, I think, even to guide them through things like this. But he will often strip away the veil from those kind of things and show them for what they really are. You know, eventually marriages crumble or religious communities crumble, you know, because of what you'd mentioned here, because they can't persevere if they aren't really rooted in this kind of selfless love that we see in Christ. A mutual 
giving of oneself in obedience to the other. And, I th and in some ways, I think this is what we see in the elder and in the disciple. You know, this, I didn't, this isn't from me. I received this from the elder, that this, the witness of this was given to me and was shown to me. Something far greater was given to me. And now I embrace it and seek to model my life upon it. Okay, any other thoughts? All right. From St. Barsanufius, one of you have to name your son out there. <laughs> Barsanufius, please, we don't have enough of them. <laughs> okay, a brother asked an elder, elder, should we cut off our will in good things or in neutral things? or on those that are considered to be a transgression of God's commandments. Also, if an obedience is beyond my ability, so that I may not be distressed or perturbed later on, should I refrain from carrying it out? All good questions. I imagine everybody would be saying, yeah, that's this. I, I wish I had thought of this. The elder replied, brother, he who wishes to be a monk is not entitled to have his will in anything. The Lord teaches us this when he says, I came into the world not to do my own will. For he who wishes to carry out one thing or desist from another either makes himself out to be more discerning than the one who gives the order or the demons are poking fun at him. But both are evil and are due to demonic activity. Hence, you should be obedient in all things, for your elder who gives you instructions will bear the responsibility as the one who is accountable for your salvation. If what he orders you to do seems burdensome, ask him about it and leave the matter to his discretion. But if those who have given you orders are brothers and you see or think that a thing is harmful to you or beyond your capability, then ask the elder again and do what he tells you. For if you wish to make decisions, not only about things, but also about men, then you will cause harm to yourself. Where the thing about which they are giving orders seems good, you should obey the brothers. But where your mind hesitates or the thing seems to be beyond your ability or presents the possibility of harm, then you should entrust yourself to the elder and do what he decides is good. For he knows what he is doing and how he should look after your soul. Let your soul be at rest then and have confidence that what he tells you is in conformity with the will of God. Whatever is helpful according to God does not bring distress or agitation, since nothing bad comes from good. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. The brother asked again, what does this mean for someone to cut off his will? Brother, cutting off your will is progress in God's eyes. It consists with regard to things that are reckoned to be good in one's doing, not what, what one wants, and what the saints say. In the case of bad things, he should avoid what is improper by his own choice. So a lot there. And see, how can we 
sort of pull this apart a little bit. You know, again, back to Philip Neri. He said that we should be obedient not only to our superiors, but to our inferiors. And, and by that, he did, wasn't meaning, you know, that they are inferior people, but those who have been in the community less long than you, for less time than you, or who have been given a particular office within the community. And so are, you know, they are responsible for asking you to do something and that it should not only be to the superior, but also to others in the community that you should offer that same obedience since they've been put in that position by the superior himself. And uh, Philip Neri, you know, uh, uh, you know, obeyed this himself. You know, he had a couple sacristans who didn't like him. And so they gave him the, the grubbiest and oldest uh, vestments to wear for, for every liturgy that he said and, you know, treated him poorly. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, he was able to embrace it. And the same thing, you know, if the, the doorbell rings or if the porter calls you, uh, because somebody wants to go to confession or someone needs to speak to a priest, then you drop what you're doing and go and do it. And I think most often what we read in these paragraphs is enacted in our own life in that way, where we are called to set aside our own will and that we are to set it aside, not simply for ourselves or because we've determined to do so, but because the situation demands it, or because somebody else has asked us to do it, even if it comes to us at an inconvenient time, or for a person who is irritating to us, and that we do not particularly like within the community. And uh, this can be very hard. And so we see, you know, the elder, you know, always referring things back to the elder, realizing that there can be misapplications of things. There can be things that are asked that are dangerous or harmful. And so if one's conscience is telling one, I, I really am uncomfortable with this, with what is being asked of me, then you would have to be obedient to your conscience there and go and lay it before the elder and say, you know, I'm, I'm having difficulty with this. And I either think it's beyond me, beyond my strength, or what is being asked of me is not the right thing to do. And uh, again, you know, this sort of emphasizes for us the importance of the elder and the one that is chosen, but also the responsibility the enormous responsibility uh, upon placed upon the elders shoulders that the salvation and the good of the one under him is is his responsibility and so he has to be incredibly discerning in his formation and you know this is true i think of parents you know your children are entrusted to, to you by god uh, even though they're a part of you, they do not belong to you, they've been entrusted to you, and, and in particular, their formation as human beings and, uh, and their salvation. And so how one takes up that role is very much, I think, like the spiritual elder, 
that there's a kind of obedience the parent uh, the children are to show their parents and the parents are supposed to uh, be acting in a way that has their children's best interest at heart and you know i don't often think that we look at spiritual elders spiritual fathers or a, uh, someone in a religious community as having that kind of love or affection you know, my daughters or my sons, you know, that the elders would be saying to themselves that I'm going to be asking of them to do things that may be very difficult for them or be asking them to do things that they particularly don't want to do, but I'm asking them to do that for the good of the community and for their good and for the shaping of their minds and their hearts. I think we get a pretty good sense of why Christ, you know, looking out upon the people is shaken and trembles at the sight because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And in some instances, really, the, the language itself already tells us that what he's seeing is not just people wandering around, but sheep that have already been slaughtered by the wolves because unattended. And so he trembles at the sight. And, you know, and so it tells us something important that, you know, this is an extremely uh, important role, but one that is often neglected. You know, and so we're called that God would send, you know, those into the harvest that are needed you know, to be able to do this particular kind of work because it's so often lacking. So that brings us to the end of this hypothesis. Anybody have any comments or questions? We're going to explore it a lot further. So if you have a lot of questions, you know, don't worry, we're going to get to them, I'm sure. But any final thoughts? Okay, a lot to meditate upon and pray about. And uh, keep me in your prayers as well. And uh, won't we close there, uh, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God.